0: Isaac Morehouse, welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. TK, do you want to know what my three favorite words are?
1: What are they, man?
0: Can You, you don't have any guesses? I love you. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs>
1: those are my least
0: favorite words. <laughs> yeah, that's something about that just made everything really awkward and uncomfortable. Dude, it was, it was a holy moment. <laughs> uh, what movie was that? Uh, was that what the bleep do we know? Or no, no, no that was the,
1: uh, waking life movie. Um, I, I forget. Uh, it, it was the, uh, is it Richard? Richard? Is it Linklater? Um, oh, so
0: anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, there, there's
1: yeah. a scene in that movie. Where you have the two guys, having this conversation. And one of the guys was just talking about this mystical idea that every moment in life is sacred. And he's telling another guy, and the other guy's pretty interested, like, okay, this is cool. And he goes, yeah, every moment can be holy. And the guy's like, that's that's cool. I like that idea. And he goes, like, we can have a holy moment right now. And the guy's like, uh, okay. And he goes, like, just look at me in the eyes. And the guy's getting awkward. And they just stare at each other for a minute in silence. And the guy goes, see, that moment was holy. But, and the other guy's just like, "Um, yeah, it was pretty but uncomfortable. It was even <laughs> more
0: creepy because the way the guy said it was so mild-mannered. If you would have been like, see, right there, that was a holy moment. It would have been weird, but not that uncomfortable. But the guy was so – he was like, we just had a holy moment. <laughs> it, was so, <laughs> it was so creepy. Okay. Uh, no, those aren't my three favorite words, at least in terms of uh, – uh, now, see, now I'm going to get stuck. People are going to be like, what, what is wrong with Isaac? What a jerk. He doesn't like the words I love you. Who couldn't? No, l- I'm going to stop. I'm not going to go further down that hole. My three favorite words are compared to what? I think those <clears throat> words are so powerful when analyzing anything, whether it's theories about the way the, the world or society should work, whether it's theories about some sort of policy at a company or a government entity, or decisions in your own personal life, when you're analyzing something, a purchase, a major decision, it's really easy to fall into the nirvana fallacy and to say, yeah, but if I move into that house, it doesn't have the master bathroom that I want. um, And the shower molding is a little bit, the, the color it's off white. I want it to be white. If you've ever been house shopping, Uh, you get into this weird thing where you you start to nitpick the weirdest stuff. You'll see it on those shows too. They'll be like, oh, the outlet covers, I don't like those. Those are, you know, 29 cents to replace. Um, But you start to compare something that you're trying to make a decision on to nirvana, to a a non-possible alternative. You're comparing it to some ideal of perfection, some abstraction, and you're just thinking of all the ways it could be better. But none of those are actually relevant choices on the table. On the table, you have this house or every other house in the same price range. You need to compare them to each other. So asking compared to what is so, so powerful. Yes, this computer has some features that I you know wish were different, but compared to what? I don't have an unlimited budget or unlimited time to go study. Compared to the relevant alternatives, this is the best decision. So why do I bring that up? I think this is really powerful. When we talk about praxis, you know, this this program where in less than a year you get this intense boot camp to learn really the skills and and mindsets that are valuable for creating a successful life in the world and career. And then you get this apprenticeship, this paid apprenticeship where you're earning more than you're paying through the cost of the program. So you're you're netting out positive and you're getting hired on full time at the end. You're getting an amazing job at an amazing startup company. Um, even if you're not a coder or a programmer and you want to work at a startup in less than a year for no debt, it's an amazing program. We can talk about all the things that we love about it, but often I think it's even more powerful to say compared to what, because that's where the reality is. That's where the rubber meets the road. You can't just analyze is Praxis a valuable or interesting or good program for me or someone I know. Well, compared to what? So when we do the compared to what's, I was just talking to UTK about Charles Porges, who's in our program right now. He is 18. He just got a raise at his Praxis business partner. The program isn't even done yet. He is managing a bunch of subcontractors. He's learning all these CRM tools. He is helping a growing startup in Atlanta build their company. They love him. He's, he's getting paid to do this. He's having an amazing experience building his own personal website and brand. Compared to what? What else would he have been doing? He would have been sitting in more classrooms for another year going into more debt uh, and not really having any clarity on what it's like to do digital marketing, which he's interested in and, and not being any closer to that. So I just I love that question. And I especially love it when it comes to analyzing praxis, because you know, even if you say, I don't know, there's some unknowns, there's some risks, boy, it's challenging. Practice is going to be really challenging. It's going to push me. Um, I'm, I'm going to be into, you know, experiences and, and educational components that are really, really tough. Um, will this be good for me? Well, compared to what? I mean, that's when you, you start to see, uh, the alternatives don't always look all that great. So, uh, how, how was that TK? Was that a good old oh, man?
1: Oh yeah. That was awesome, man. I love it.
0: All right. So now that you've um, given me the validation that I so desperately need from you. Uh, well,
1: I, I wanted to say compared to what, but you know,
0: that's, that's what I was setting you up for. And you, you've, you should have said it. Okay. What held you back from saying that? Because
1: I'm only on the second chapter of my how to be funny book that I'm studying. <laughs> <laughs> so I still got a long way to go, but I'm getting better. I, I at least know how to laugh now.
0: <laughs> All right. So speaking of funny, this is a great segue to something that you and I have have observed and talked about for years. So that that sort of sales tactic or marketing technique that I just use, which is basically if you weren't doing praxis, what else would you be doing or praxis compared to something else? It's a really common technique to use, you know, uh, use our tires compared to the other tires or here's the iPhone compared to the Android. But <laughs> I've always found it funny in the evangelical community that you and I grew up in. This is like youth pastors and like guest speakers. They always try to use this tactic to promote Christianity. And I feel like they almost <laughs> always botched it. I saw so many you know, young youth pastor guys come into a high school to give a talk and say, you know, if I wasn't a Christian right now, if I wasn't saved – you know, I would be and then they always tell some story and then they start to get really into it and you can tell that they like they, they miss that life and they kind of wish they were there. So you know, I would be I had all the women, I had a Harley, I was hanging out at the clubs, you know, doing drugs, snorting coke, I was making money, I was cool, I was in a rock band. If I wasn't a Christian, I'd probably be waking up with a bunch of different women and blah 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 in the parties. And then all of a sudden they kind of trail off and say, but you know, but but I found God and I got saved, you know, and and the subtext is always, and here I am in some basement with fluorescent lights, eating cold (laughs) pizza, talking to a bunch of teenagers, (laughs) and it's always such a like botched sales job. Like I always felt like they were like, man, man, that guy was cool before he became a Christian. So you don't want to botch the sales job in that way. (laughs) You've heard those, haven't you? Oh
1: man, all the time. Like, yeah, you know, before I was a Christian man, I, I could have been in the NBA, man. I, I had a scholarship to a division one college. I was averaging twenty points a game. You know, I had a sales job. I was making like six figures every year. But yeah, man, I found the Lord and started going to church, you know. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> you know you know those before and after pictures where people go on a diet program where before the diet they never show the person smiling, they don't have a good haircut. They have like a T-shirt on with spaghetti sauce on the shirt, and then the after picture where they lost diet, they're, they're, where they lost weight because of the diet. They're smiling. They got a nice haircut. They got jewelry and nice clothes on. It's kind of like the contrast in their attitude alone. That's what it's like when people give these testimonies. They're like so hyped up when they're talking about the way it used to be, and it's like after they started going to church, their voice gets quiet. Like. Yeah. Then I, I gave it up. I gave it all up for
0: God. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Those were absolutely, Gotta love the, it. absolutely the best. Okay. Uh, there's two things that I kind of mostly want to talk about today. Um, one is in both of these, you and I have kind of chatted about a little bit throughout the week and I thought, man, we need to, we need to dive into this a little bit. One is, uh, why we treat writers with so much more scrutiny than readers. Um, and the other one is what happens the the, the trade I guess the trade-off between creativity and control. Which one of these do you want to talk about first?
1: Let's talk about the first one about about writers and and about about writers and readers and holding them accountable. All
0: right. So um, what was the article, TK, that that brought this up? You've been seeing an article go around about Malcolm Gladwell's work.
1: Yes. So basically, there's an article. Going viral this past week. I've been seeing it all over my Twitter feed and my uh, Facebook news feed. And, and it's basically an article about how Malcolm Gladwell has oversimplified some of the research surrounding this whole 10,000 hour rule that he's known for popularizing. And the bit of this 10,000 hour rule is that it takes at least 10,000 hours of practice at something in order to move into that upper echelon of greatness or genius. It's it's an extension of the theme that talent is overrated, that you can't be great at something just because you were born with a gift to sing or to calculate or whatever it may be. High IQ isn't alone, but it isn't good enough. So when you, you know that um, occupy that upper echelon of their field, it's because they commit to a lifestyle of practice and not just being gifted it alone. So this article points out how Gladwell kind of oversimplifies things and, you know, um, uh, under underemphasizes the importance that other kinds of advantages play. He tries to get a little bit too much out of the research and so forth. And what was funny to me, what was funny to me is that all of the things, well, first of all, every, Everyone was was hopping onto this. Everyone's sharing it. And then people are like, yeah, Gladwell always does this oversimplifies the research. And and I wonder to myself how many of these people actually read Gladwell, because I I don't consider myself a Gladwell fanboy. I know who he is. I've heard some of his talks. I've gotten some value out of him like I have about everyone else. But just from a casual reading of his actual work, a casual listening to his TED talks and so forth, I never got the impression that he was interpreting the 10,000-an-hour rule in the way that he's accused of, of, of doing. And, and, and it seems like these criticisms of him are based on a really uncharitable reading of this guy's actual work. In fact, I, I haven't done a lot of research on this whole idea of talent is overrated, but it was from Malcolm Gladwell that I got this idea. Like Malcolm Gladwell would be the first guy to say that Isaac and TK can practice basketball all day long and they'll never be as half as good as Allen Iverson because they just aren't equipped.
0: I don't think you should be speaking for me here. Rick Smith was always who I wanted to be. Right, right, right.
1: You know, so I I can practice for 10,000 hours Alan Iverson can practice for 100 hours and he'll still be 10,000 10, times better than me, right? So certainly things like genius, innate talent, circumstantial advantages and so forth do play a role at creating this insurmountable gap between certain groups of people. However, once you get into that upper echelon, there are thousands of people who are equipped with Alan Iverson's athleticism, with the kind of athleticism necessary to play D1 college ball or to get into the NBA. And what separates those guys one from the other is their commitment to practice. And and I also got from um, Malcolm Gladwell the idea that it's not just any kind of practice, but it's also deliberate practice, that it's not practice that makes perfect. It's perfect practice or efficient practice that moves you closer to perfection. So I, I was actually shocked by this, and this sort of raised a bigger issue for me, which is both the lost art of charitable interpretation and the way in which we love to take writers to task for what they say, but we don't really take ourselves to task for how we interpret other people's words. It's almost as if you can interpret another writer's words any way you want and that person will be responsible for it. So if you write a book about how you know, people can do anything they set their minds to, someone reads that book, and then, you know, um, you know, tries to, um, tries to literally fly, you know, it, it's almost like we would hold that author accountable. Well, you said it, and this person did that, and you're responsible for ruining their lives. I actually remember when the, when the book The Secret first came out several years ago, this actually happened. So the book was talking about the creative power of thought and how you can you know influence reality with your mind and there were people who were literally visualizing jewelry forming around their neck they were they were visualizing million dollar checks showing up in the mailbox and they were getting their hearts broken when this wasn't happening and and, and everyone was criticizing the writers on the secret for scamming them and, so and it made Made me actually read a copy of The Secret to see what they were saying. And one of the first things I saw when I read the book, yeah, a lot of the claims are exaggerated, but a lot of the writers were saying things like, don't forget to put the action in attraction. You can't just close your eyes and visualize money and get rich. You actually have to go do something to create value. And it's funny to me because we never challenge the readers. Like, who are who are all these people out there ruining their lives over the words of Malcolm Gladwell over the yeah. words of a book like The Secret. And, and and why why don't we have a conversation with these people? First, I want to see who they actually are. Are they out there? And, and why don't we have a conversation with them about what it means to engage a text critically?
0: Right. I mean, I, you know, we, we touched on part of this phenomena in a really early episode about comment culture and, and criti- or, I'm sorry, call out culture and criticism. And there's kind of two aspects about this type of thing that annoy me. And I've seen that article going all around, too, and everybody kind of loves the uh, look, here's research, research, science, research, data, uh, data, science that shows that Malcolm Gladwell, yeah, he's just a hack. He's just a, oh, he, yeah, he totally missed the boat. He got it wrong. He's misinterpreting things. I always knew it. I always knew it. I wasn't duped. So the, the, the one part of it is that it's so easy to be a critic and to be too cool for everything. Oh yeah. Malcolm Gladwell. I wasn't, I wasn't moved by him. Yeah. Oh yeah. 10,000 hours. Ha. It's like, well oh, oh, what have you even gained? So what? You're too cool for everything. Um, while
1: all of you mere mortals were busy praising Malcolm Gladwell and being impressed
0: by him, I I knew all along. How about you just look for what's valuable in there? Is there any insight to the concept of, you know, it's a catchphrase. It's become ubiquitous, 10,000 hours, but it stands for something. It means a tremendous amount. 10,000 is a, is a number 10,000 hours. That's hard for us to wrap our head around. It basically means commit your life to something if you want to really be very good at it. And there's all kinds, it seems pretty obvious to me that that's not supposed to mean everything in every instance. Um, so, you know, it, it, there's the sort of, oh, look at me, I'm too cool to be impacted by any information, any knowledge, certainly any popularizers of anything, which is just, uh, it's just kind of signaling. It just seems like a insecure people trying to signal that they are so cool and skeptical that they're never duped, which doesn't seem to me to, to benefit anyone. But the other part about it is what you touched on. This whole phenomena of solutions in search of problems. Like, where is the problem? Is there some problem in society with a bunch of people having read Malcolm Gladwell and understanding him to say, that if you practice exactly 10,000 hours at anything and any kind of practice at all, you will become the best in the world and people are going out and doing this and it's ruining their lives? Has this ever happened anywhere? And if it is, as you said, why why wouldn't you write an article like, you know, instead of Malcolm Gladwell got it wrong, how about if you read Malcolm Gladwell and interpret it this way, you're an idiot, you got it wrong, (laughs) you know? Like, why don't we hold readers accountable uh, for being stupid in their interpretation and their actions the way that we we assume writers, like it's up to them to make sure every single person properly interprets your thing. And not only that, like you said, I don't even think that anyone is misinterpreting this. I don't think anyone who reads Gladwell is going to walk away thinking anything that disagrees with what that, that paper about the original study said. I don't think Gladwell himself would disagree. So it's this kind of culture yeah, I, of solutions I, I want, yeah. in search of problems, um, and I don't, I don't really understand the need to sort of jump on this bad wagon and like take a side because there's not even sides. It's not even a real problem. Is there anyone out there who has actually, you know, read Gladwell and ruin their life because they missed the nuance?
1: Oh, absolutely. There's an article in the New Yorker that he wrote in 2013, and it was called "Complexity and the 10,000 Hour Rule," and and back then. He, he was addressing these same types of misunderstandings and criticism and criticisms. And I, and I thought he addressed them pretty well back then. And, and most people don't even remember this article, you know, in light of the one that they're sharing. But I, I, I agree. Absolutely. Show me the people it's, it's funny because it reminds me of something just to go on a quick little tangent here. Uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before, th- there was this big thing, you know, in social media about Blake lively. Um, apparently she posted a picture on Instagram, of her in like a dress. And there was a front shot and a back shot. And she wrote as her caption, um, LA face with an Oakland booty. And she was quoting the lyrics Sir from Mix-a-Lot. Sir Mix-a-Lot. <laughs> Sir Mix-a-Lot, yep. Sir Mix-a-Lot song, Baby Got Back. And you know, she was, she was doing something that I think is pretty typical in selfie culture, Instagram culture, what have you. And there was this media blitz of, you know, People accusing Blake Lively of being racist for this line. And, and you know, That's when I step back, I, right. Y- y- yep. Yep. People are accusing her of cultural appropriation. People are accusing her of being rape, uh, racist. And OK, if I do some mental gymnastics and I don't know where the song, where the lyric came from and so forth, I can kind of stretch a little bit and see how someone might accuse her of that. But here's the most interesting part to me. I was immediately suspicious of the story and I I, I kind of spent about 10 minutes of my time sort of looking into it. And and I saw a couple of things. Number one, a ton of articles from big media outlets saying everyone is offended by Blake Lively and they're accusing her of being racist. I saw a bunch of that. Then I saw a bunch of articles of people saying, oh, my gosh, why do people make everything about race? Or this is why they never take us seriously when we when we make serious claims about race. But you know what I didn't see? I, I, I didn't see. A large number of people that were actually offended by Blake Lively. So there was a lot of talk about how everyone's offended. And there were there was, you know, by the media. And there was a lot of talk by ordinary people saying, I hate it when everyone gets offended over this. But the smallest and most quiet voice were the people that were offended. And I want to meet those people, you know, because most people are just like, who's Blake Lively? Oh, I didn't even know she posted anything. Oh, that's okay. I even saw some guys were like, hey, she's right. She's right. You know, And, and, and it's just like you know, this manufactured sort of manufactured misunderstandings, manufactured misinterpretations. So I, I want to meet these people. I want to meet these people that, that actually came away with this interpretation that the author wouldn't agree with. I want to meet these people who, in spite of the context, in spite of the clear intended meanings, are coming away with these interpretations that ruin their lives or make them offended. To,
0: well, you have to really stop and think for yourself for a good, clear minute before entering into any of this stuff. So in the world of social media, which I absolutely love, where you just see this stream of things, whatever's trending, whatever's hot. And even if you're just doing it lightheartedly or as a joke, it's it's really easy and fun to kind of comment on whatever the latest thing is, you know, the ALS ice bucket challenge or whatever new trend or meme is going around to make a joke, to make a comment. And even before doing that, I think you have to step back and really ask yourself, what's What's actually going on here? Because there are so many of these fake issues where you have people arguing about beliefs that other people don't actually hold. Like they're really like you you mentioned the uh, the old Starbucks Christmas coffee cup thing. I never once came across a single person, either in person or on social media, who was offended or upset that Starbucks changed their coffee cups at the holidays. I don't. Maybe there were some people, but I never saw any evidence. I just saw tons of evidence about how Christians are all going crazy. They're all offended. They're all boycotting Starbucks. They're all. And so then it's like, what's your opinion on this issue? Or do do you think it's stupid? Is it overblown? Is Starbucks in the wrong? Are these people? And it was actually, as far as I could tell, or at least based on my own experience, I had no evidence of it. You're, you're being asked to take sides where there are no sides. The sides cease, do not exist until you take one. It's like Schrodinger's argument. <laughs> it, it's, it's non-existent oh, until, yeah. Yeah. until you observe it or until you become a part of it. There is no actual debate until people decide to latch on and take the pole and jump in. You know, it kind of reminds me of it. And then you see all this stress. Everyone's stressed about, you know, um, what's right and what's wrong or uh, the, the thing we talked about with Gladwell, how people you know, could misinterpret you, even though they haven't yet even though I don't misinterpret you, I understand you. It's like the people we, who can get concerned when, you you know, I write a blog post or you write a blog post or a Facebook staff and they say, hey, you should just be careful. I had one that I shared today from a year ago where it was just about, hey, take the opportunity to work for free doing cool stuff if you can. Try not to put yourself in a position where you have to earn a bunch of money because that might limit your ability to, to seize on opportunities that don't pay as well up front. Very basic. And there's all these people commenting. It was hilarious about, yeah, but what if somebody, you know, oh, that's what privileged people say. Or what if someone can't do this? What if they, and none of the people themselves claimed that they thought that's what I was saying. They all were worried that someone else might think that. So it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, I think of four different ways to be stressed out, uh, or to be worried. And it reminds me of Milton Friedman's four ways to spend money. You can spend your own money on yourself. You can spend your own money, which you're going to do really wisely and prudently. You're going to you can spend your own money on someone else. So I can buy you a gift, and I'm going to do that not as prudently as on myself, but I will do it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll focus on getting the best bang for my buck. I can spend someone else's money on myself. So if you know, uh, I've got somebody who's giving me money, Uh, let's say parents are paying for school. You're not, as a student, you're not gonna be as demanding and responsible as a consumer if your parents are paying for it. Um, You're not gonna demand as much value. And then finally, I can spend someone else's money on someone else. So I'm voting for a policy that takes money from somebody and gives it to somebody and I don't know either of them. And that's where I'm gonna be the least responsible and we're gonna get the least value, the least bang for your buck. It's the same with stress. You can, or worry, you can worry about, you know, your own problems for yourself. You can worry about other people's problems. Oh, I'm worried about TK. Maybe he's doing this wrong. You can worry about other people's actions for yourself. Oh, this person's doing this. It might affect me. Or you can worry about other people's problems for other people, right? Or other people's actions for other people. Oh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book. I'm worried that it might lead some other person that I've never met to make a bad decision. I better take a side on this. Or, oh, somebody named Blake Lively, who I don't even know, posted something. I'm worried about other people who are theoretically offended by this. Like, which one of those is the most productive and beneficial to your life? Worrying about what someone else did and how it might affect someone else. It has nothing to do with you. You're not either the person producing it. The action or the person affected by the action, and that's so common and, and, and it's so weird to me. And,
1: and, and not only, not only is there this concern about how other people might misunderstand, but it's a concern that exists independently of what it means to critically engage a text. So I'm concerned about the way another person might misunderstand your words, in spite of, in spite of what the context demands of. of, of in- any reader or or in spite of you know genuine considerations about what we ought to hold you responsible for but but I have another thing I kind of want to want us to segue into that's that's related so I, I wrote a Facebook post just a couple of days ago that that I think is quite pertinent to this I I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it really quickly and, and make this comment but one of the things as I say here's here's it's amazing to see how much worry and concern you can stir up when you start telling people to respect themselves and their possibilities Stand up and shout something like the world is going to hell and people nod their heads and say, yep, it sucks. No evidence required. No definitions requested. No concerns about misunderstanding due to exaggeration expressed. Suggest the people might have more options than they realize, however, and they become overnight scientists and semantic experts who demand proof and precision to the highest degree. I love it, though. Skepticism is great. It's going to be even greater when people start applying it to all the fear-based philosophies that govern their lives. One of these days we're going to wake up and realize that skepticism isn't just something we should employ when people talk about buying lottery tickets and seeing UFOs. I, I wrote that and I and I read that now because this sort of mentality that we're talking about, you notice that it only comes up when you're trying to um, – catalyze a conversation about people expanding their sense of possibility. So for instance, if you go on Facebook and you say, man, life stinks, how many people are actually going to say, Hey, Isaac, I'm concerned about the imprecise manner in which you communicate it you know, yourself. I mean, you might want to be careful, man, because depression rates are high and a lot of people, you know, are, are feeling hopeless. And I, and I don't want anybody to misunderstand and think that we can never be happy. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's OK to be happy, Isaac. I don't want you to make people think they got to feel bad all the time. Nobody ever does that. And, and people get away with making imprecise, inaccurate, completely unsubstantiated comments that are sort of negative and pessimistic and we give it a free pass almost every time but for some reason when you start to say something like hey you have more possibilities than you can imagine or hey you
0: you can do more oh, than yeah? you realize. I can, I can imagine flying with wings, but I can't.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or, or hey, Isaac, be, be careful with this statement because I don't want some guy that has less privileges than you making the mistake of believing that his possibilities are too great. Be yeah, it's, careful. It's, it's and, easy and, for and again, you to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, but be consistent and, and be careful about all this other stuff. But but I think it points to the larger problem of, of, of how – how we see responsibility, you know, I, I I think there are some issues there. So even when it comes hey, this, to this
0: gives me an idea. The next time I see somebody with a post that says something like "life sucks," I'm gonna put "easy for you to say." <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> You're just exercising your pessimistic privilege,
1: <laughs> right? Oh man, that that's too awesome. You know, uh, but it's funny though because I, you know, going back to the whole Gladwell thing, I, I think one thing that is sort of a lost art, is viewing authors as people who are there to challenge us to think that they are leaders, not saviors. They are not here to give us all the answers or swoop down and rescue us from ignorance. They're here to start conversations. And that's why you read an article, that's why you read a book, that's why you listen to to podcasts, not so that you can just mindlessly absorb everything that people are telling you, but so that you can do your own research. So when someone introduces a concept like the 10,000 hour rule and it seems interesting to you, or it seems like something that you wanna try out, that's, that should be a starting point for research. If if someone makes a claim, like here's a new diet that's causing people to lose weight in a really efficient way, that's cool. If it seems interesting to you, that doesn't mean you just go start the diet, do a little research on your own now and get more of a balanced view. Like it's there to start a discussion. not to So what would you
0: say on the relationship between truth and effectiveness? What would you say to someone saying, okay, um, I don't just want to encounter Malcolm Gladwell and then figure out what I can do, what I can add to or subtract from that or how I can take that and use it in an effective way for my life or not. Um, yeah, 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 that's valuable. But I also want to figure out if he's right and finding out whether or not it's true is equally as important. I had a, I've had a couple conversations with Steve Patterson on this podcast and in one of them he said, you know, he thinks that the pursuit of truth Trumps everything, and knowing if something is true is more important than knowing if it's effective. And you know, and I said, well, if, you know, if, if I believe something, even if it's untrue, but it helps me achieve my goals, I would rather have that than to discover the truth, and it gives me no way to improve my life. And maybe that's a false dichotomy, but how would you, how would you address that if someone said, but TK, it's important to know the truth, not just to figure out what's effective.
1: Yeah. So I think it absolutely matters that it's true. And it's one of the reasons why I think the principle of charitable interpretation is so important, because if I thought the reaction to Malcolm Gladwell was just free of error, then I wouldn't even dare to criticize it. So we started the show by you telling me what your favorite three words are. I'll tell you what my favorite four words are. And I think you can literally slice more than 50 percent of debates in half if you just use these four words more often. What do you mean? Okay, now, if you're concerned about truth, you will immediately recognize that the most irresponsible thing you could ever do when you are criticizing what another person says is to proceed with your criticism without stopping to ask, what do you mean? Because the very act of saying that something is true or false presupposes a particular understanding of what they are saying, right? To say that something is true is to say, here is the... Propositional content. Here is the claim that's being made about reality, and that claim does not correspond to reality. So you don't have the right to say that something is false or true unless you can substantiate your claim to accurately understand what a person is intending to convey. So I I think before we get into questions about is this idea effective or is this idea true, we have to stop, step back and say, wait a minute, words are a tool that people use use to convey thoughts and intentions based on the context and all the information I have available to me. What is the best understanding I can come up with for what this person is trying to convey? And then whenever you have the opportunity, I think you should cross check it with that other person to make sure you're understanding them right. But, but I, but I do think when you criticize an idea, you should at least, you know, be sensitive to the fact that you are criticizing it, you know, presupposing a particular understanding.
0: And I've never, um, I, you know, I, I question, and I haven't de- delved into this enough to really have a, a super clear idea here of where I'm going with this. But I, I question the dichotomy between truthfulness and usefulness. You like that? That was rhymey. Truthfulness and usefulness in your usefulness. Oh,
1: love- <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. The youth, the youthfulness part topped it off.
0: So you know, I mean, I guess I, I don't. I don't mean that there's no notion of something can be true or false or existent or non-existent, whether or not it's useful to me. But I think truth itself, the discovery of truth, understanding more truths uh, is useful. Now, that's not the same as understanding more facts. Just knowing a bunch of random facts or data points, I don't think is necessarily useful. And I don't think it's necessarily truthful either. Um it's not untrue, but but it doesn't, I guess there's no wisdom in it. There's no depth to that truth. It's no, uh, there, there's no connections or causality. It's just, you know, here, this one pixel on my screen right here is black. Yes, that is a true fact, but there's no truth in it. There's no, there's nothing in it that conveys any kind of meaning. Um, so I, I don't know, I guess I guess I don't know how comfortable I feel with with this stark separation of as if I am some sort of dispassionate scientist who just pursues the truth uh, versus I'm somebody who's trying to figure out what works and how uh, to use knowledge in ways to bring about specific outcomes. I think that's mostly a made up dichotomy as a way that we use to sort of put ourselves above and pretend to be really pure and high and mighty. Are you following me?
1: Oh, absolutely. In, in fact, I think people who characterize themselves as being all about effectiveness and not truth or vice versa are just unconscious of how that other element plays um, um, a, 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 an, an inseparable role in, in their lifestyle. So, for instance, anyone who sort of takes the Dr. Spock approach and says, I only care about truth, I'm not concerned with effectiveness, I'm just about the truth, it's only because they believe it is true that truth is more effective. Because you can ask, all right, well, um, why why follow the truth? They can say, well, because it's true. And you can say, okay, sure. But you can look at the truth in the face, you can give the truth the middle finger, and you can live in a way that's completely opposite of that. Why don't you go do that? It's because ultimately, they believe that it's more effective to orient their lives around the truth, that it helps to be successful if you agree with reality. You know, um, you know, if it's true that there is a cliff in front of me and I keep walking, there's gonna be a problem. So like truth is very useful. Um, and, and I think anytime we, we sort of act as if we're only concerned about truth and we don't care about useful u- usefulness, it's just because we aren't conscious of how much we care about usefulness and how useful the truth is. Or,
0: or even just usefulness, you know, the ends we wanna bring about aren't always, you know, more money or the avoidance of falling off a cliff every action ultimately the end that we're ultimately seeking is something that exists only in the mind which is pleasure which is happiness which is something subjective so the pursuit of truth itself discovering something new about you know the rings of saturn uh, may not impact the way that i live my daily life but that discovery is effective at bringing about a feeling of excitement, of enjoyment, of fulfillment, of wonder, of the things that I want in life. It makes me happy to learn certain new things. So discovering truth is effective at bringing about the ultimate end, which is the end that I'm trying to get from money, from work, from everything, which is happiness, which is fulfillment. So, um, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, you, go you, know, you know
1: what? This dichotomy reminds me uh, this dichotomy reminds me of all the dystopian films where some society tries to outlaw desire I, I think there's a there's a new film starring your favorite actor uh, Kristen stewart and and,
0: and I, think it's called <laughs> I don't Equal. even know who <laughs> Kristen stewart is <laughs>
1: and funny. i love you for it um but, but it's, just, it's called it's equals a holy
0: moment. Do you know do you i know, know right that was a holy moment
1: oh man that moment was very holy <laughs> so so this movie it's called equals and, and it it's all about a world where the only crime is desire, and everything is about logic, logic, logic. And, and what's funny is when you look at all the scenes th- there are movie—they're th- scenes with where these really logical people who are, who are against desire say things like, "I don't want you to desire," or, or, or they say things like, "I want a society that is purely logical." It's like, wait a minute—you mean you desire a logical society? You know? But, but it's just one example of how. Even in worlds of fiction where we try really hard to create a world that is all about logic and it's not about desire and feeling and passion and effectiveness, even then, movies like this show just how impossible that is to conceive of such a society. We can't get away from desire. Um,
0: let's flip to the Let's flip to the next topic. You. Let's game? flip the script. All right, let's do, I'm going to do three more words that I love. These are, this this is a Latin phrase, three Latin words, Ah. uh, forgive my Latin pronunciation. It's not a spoken language anymore, so I'm going to just anglicize it and Isaacify it. So the three words, uh, I gotta, hold on, I gotta remember, (laughs) I gotta remember them now. I think I had the order wrong. Uh, sequitur credere, which is action follows belief. And I I love that phrase or another interpretation of it is um, you act according to which you believe yourself to be. Um, I love that phrase and that's really been a, a foundation of my whole life, both personally and the way that I view society. I believe in the premise of beliefs, ideas as the origin point of every act of creation, of every invention, of every social institution, the reason that things are the way they are in the world today is because of the beliefs and ideas of humans. So every object you look at, I mean, this desk that I'm sitting at, it began in someone's mind. It began as an idea, whether the first idea for a table that someone had that was passed on or a specific idea of the specific type of table before it was carried out in the world, it began in the mind. Now there's this huge debate about... Whether in for social change more broadly, you know, the beliefs and norms and morals that we have today, did those come about because technology changed and that changed people's beliefs or did people's beliefs change and that changed technology? Or did policy change and that altered people's beliefs or did people's beliefs change and that altered policy? Now, I think you can look at a bunch of epochs in history and say, oh, look, the invention of the washing machine changed the way that we view uh, a woman's role in the home or, you know, the need for a stay at home mom. Uh, has now become lessened and people value that less with their social values because there are all these tools that allow, you know, the things that used to take all day for someone to do, like doing the dishes and laundry, don't need to Uh, work has changed. So physical strength because of technology isn't as important. That's changed beliefs about gender roles and women working. So you can see technology changing belief and everybody gets caught up in this, which came first. Now, here's my, my take on this. And this ties into our topic of creativity and control and the trade-off there. I think logically, belief has to come first always for any specific action to emerge or any creation. You have to have an idea before you invent something. So the idea comes first. The imagination precedes the action. However, once created, you have birthed a new entity. You have brought something new into the world and that entity is independent of your ideas of it once you create it. Once it comes out of your head, it is no longer under your control. It is independent from you. And now it can impact other things in ways that you didn't expect. It takes on a life of its own, very much like a human child. My own children began as an idea. Uh, my first son was a surprise. So I guess that wasn't an idea. It wasn't like, hey, let's have a kid. But uh, it was a different idea <laughs> that led to that. Um Begins begins as an idea, <laughs> as an idea um, and and so the idea comes first. The idea comes first, but then once the conception occurs and that idea is born into the world, now my son is an independent entity. And he is going to create things himself. He is going to impact and change the world uh, in ways that will change even my own beliefs, will change the ideas. So, so it will, you know, technologies will change our beliefs, but those technologies themselves first came from an idea. So I, I really like kind of toying with this, like which comes first. I think they constantly feed off of each other, but any new creation starts as an idea. Okay, so this is all very long-winded, grand social theory, etc. But I think it ties in on the personal level to a challenge that many of us have with creating. And I think this is reflected in the policy level with obsession with like intellectual property laws and stuff like this. People want both, they want to create because humans just innately want to build things and create, but they want to control as well. And my contention is once you create anything, once you get the ideas that we're talking about now, the minute we speak them and put them on the air and share this podcast, They are now independent entities out there in the world, and they're going to do things I can't control. They're going to be misunderstood. They're going to inspire. They're going to anger. They're going to depress. They're going to be ignored. They're going to take on a life of their own, and they're going to impact and change the world in ways that I can no longer control or predict. And I think that scares us a lot. We want to maintain control. And the only way to control your ideas is to never act on them, to never create them. And essentially, they're stillborn. Essentially, it's, wow, I love the idea of children so much that I'm just never going to conceive one. Or if I conceive, I'm never going to let it be born because then I can't control it. Then it's not this imagined idea of children. It's a real child who might not turn out the way that I wish it would. Um, Any thoughts on this?
1: Oh, man, tons of thoughts. So there's a horror movie that came out a few years ago. I think it was uh, 20, 2011, 2012, and it's called Apparition. I don't recommend the movie because I just think it's bad. Not as in it's scary, but it's just not a great film to me. But um, maybe just go watch the trailer for a couple of minutes and you'll get everything you need out of it. But, but it's about this university uh, parapsychology experiment where they, they try to test out their ability to create an entity with their mind and and so using like this book of spells or what have you they um they basically create this entity by like infusing it with their thoughts and then the entity gets a life of its own and it begins to function independently of them and it begins to haunt them and create all of this confusion in their lives and the entire movie it's it's this battle to see how they can control what they created. And it's, it's a great example of how the, the ability to create a thing is not the same as the ability to control a thing. A better, perhaps more entertaining, well-written example would be uh, the Bartimaeus trilogy. It's, it's a um, sort of a, a fantasy book about a young boy who is a magician's apprentice, and one day he discovers this book on Goetia, which is like dark magic. And he goes through this book of spells, and he finds this powerful incantation to some in this great demon. He uses the incantation, invokes the demon, and once he's successful, he's so excited about it because this is going to change my life. Clearly, I have all this power to produce results, and now this demon's going to help me get everything that I want. But the demon actually tricks him, escapes, goes out into the world, and wreaks havoc on the boy's life and on everyone's life. And now he has to go through this journey of figuring out how to cope with the reality that he created. And, and and I think both of these points illustrated something very well that you said about having a son. It's easier to create a child than it is to control a ch- child because creating it is almost entirely up to you. That's where you have the most control. But once you create it, now you have an entity that exists independently of you and it can do all these other sorts of things that some of which will make you smile, some of which will keep you awake at night. And, and I think when, when you really look at it, this. This is one of the things that holds many people back from creating, because in order to create, you have to lose control. We often think of creativity as being in control, you know, like take control and be a creator. But I think it's paradoxically the reverse. The more you create, the more you lose control, because when you just have an idea, you are God in the realm of your imagination. You know, like you get to determine how everything plays out, but the moment you release it to the world. World, there are all of these other things that happen. Like, is like that, so you see this happen
0: a lot of the. Uh, experience when so many times when you have had the most amazing, hilarious joke in your mind and you're just so excited about it. But then <laughs> the minute you try to unleash it on the world, you realize.
1: <laughs> uh, dude, this happens all the time. I have the funniest jokes in my mind and I can even control the audience in my mind. So, in my imagination, I'm telling these. <laughs> Great jokes and everyone's laughing, but then when I actually create the experience, I lose control over my audience and I they don't find it funny that anymore.
0: Through all your studying of humor, everything, I truly believe that inside your mind, you have the world's funniest joke, but the minute you say it, you would ruin it. So it will never be spoken.
1: I have such an amazing understanding of why funny things are funny, but I just have difficulty applying it. Um, so
0: but you know that the, the horror movie examples you gave, I think- In in horror movies, um, you know, this is what I think what they do, they make us think about things and they always take it to the sort of worst possible way it could manifest. But I think what's so interesting about this, once you get comfortable with holding on loosely when you have an idea, you're just like, I'm going to share it. I'm going to create it. I'm going to share it with the world. I'm going to put it out there. And I know that I have no chance of holding onto it. And I'm not even going to try. I have an abundance mindset. I don't have a zero sum mindset where I feel like once that's out there and somebody takes it in some direction, somehow I've lost, I'm creating it. It's going out there. Um, forget about it. Often the sup- things you're most surprised by, yes, there can be negative things or this idea can take on a life of its own, or you can invent something, you know, and be like, Oppenheimer, now I have become death destroyer of worlds when you, you know invent the atomic bomb or something horribly ominous like that. But most often you're surprised by all the amazing things that happen, the unseen opportunities that manifest themselves. I mean, we talked about this before in, in terms of not having goals, but instead having processes. I never had a goal to write a book in 2014 and if I did I would have been scared away I never would have done it I wouldn't have known how to approach it I would have felt daunted what do I have to say I had a process write a blog post every single day and I put those ideas out there into the world I created them I let them go they took on a life of their own and they went out there or or they didn't take on any life they were ignored which is equally uh, scary and all of a sudden someone came to me and said hey we should put these into a book and I said, great. So we did. We put into a book, Better Off Free. You can go get it at IsaacMorehouse.com. It's a great book. Um, And that was this huge moment that was really exciting for me to accomplish something like having published a book that was a surprise, unlike in the horror movies where you create this, you summon this entity or unleash it to the world. And now you're like, oh crap, I forgot to think about all the horrible things it could do. It's more often like, oh crap, I forgot to think about all the amazing things that could happen that I haven't even thought of. I got speaking gigs that came. I have a book now. I've got, wow, this is really cool. I'm so glad I didn't hold my ideas precious and say, I have to wait till they're perfected. If I let them out now, they're not quite right. They could be misunderstood. Who cares? Let it go. Lose that control.
1: Oh man, there's an article I would recommend anyone to read. It's by Scott Birkin, uh, B E R K U N. You could just go to Scott And the name of the article is Don't Be Precious. And, and I and I think he actually begins the article with saying those are his three favorite words or, or something similar like that. So since we're on the same <laughs>
0: there's, of, there's some yeah. kind of creepy synchronicity going on.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something's in the air, man. But but he talks about that idea how, how like if you're suppressing, you know, your ideas or if you're you're afraid that a project won't work. You're being precious. You're just being too precious, and you need to learn how to let go of of this perfectionism or this need to micromanage your creations. What What makes the act of creation so beautiful is not just the element of control we have, but but it, it's the way in which. We can have these amazing ripple effects that extend beyond our own lifetime. And one of the greatest privileges in life is to create something that can outlast your individual charm. And you can't, you can't experience that until you let go of the control.
0: Create the idea. You know, the idea is where it begins. So become an idea machine and and dream and imagine, but then take steps to unleash that idea, whether in written and verbal form or actually in a, in the manifestation of it, a physical creation, a, a business that you start as uh, something that you build and let it out into the world, and then it will in turn, it will return the favor. It will change your ideas, it will change your beliefs when it, you see what it becomes. That thing is, a, is its own sort of living entity in some way. And I think embracing that and being excited by the possibility that brings is so much better of a recipe for happiness as well as you know, effectiveness and getting things done. Um, But, but you've got to, you got to understand the control that's going to go. Yeah. You talked about this in Hollywood with the screenwriters who are like, oh, I would never let someone do that to my script, what they did to this guy's movie. um, Yeah. A lot of people say that who have never had a script turned into a movie and never will uh, versus the ones that just create. And they keep creating and they say, yeah, that first thing I did, I didn't like the way it turned out. I wish they wouldn't have taken it that direction, but it's done. Uh, Now I've got some, some leverage to do the next one. And each time I can make it a little bit more like I want to and not being so afraid that someone might do the wrong thing with it, or it might not go as planned or you'll lose control. Uh, I mean, okay, so right now you have a hundred percent equity, uh, in an idea that's worth zero. Cause it doesn't exist. Would you rather have 5% equity in an idea that's worth something? You <laughs> know, you know, um, yes, we all have a hundred percent equity of the startups in our mind, which are worth zero.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. Cause you see this, you see this a lot, like open, o- open source culture is a great example of this, of how Collaboration is what makes creativity so awesome. Like with your examples with the, the entertainment industry, imagine for a moment how horrible art would be if the individual creator or if the initiator of a creative process got the sole say on, on, on what was done. So, for instance, imagine stand up comedy where the only thing that mattered was what the comedian thought was funny. And if the audience didn't laugh, the comedian could just say, Well, I know funny. Right? Or imagine how bad movies would be if the only people who had a say was not the, the audience members we criticized for being superficial, but it was just the filmmakers. Go into a film school and listen to those film students talk about how stupid the rest of us are when we make movie choices, and you'll get a glimpse of how horrible and unentertaining movies would be if the only people who got to decide were the film students. And, and this is why it's so beautiful when you create something, other people get involved, people whose expertise is in marketing, people whose expertise is in social relations and other fields, and they say, hey, I'm gonna put my touch on this, or I'm gonna suggest this. That That's very annoying at first, because you look at your idea, wait, this is my little baby, and I don't want you corrupting it by, by showing me how to market it. I don't want you to corrupt it by telling me, you know, I should appeal to this, or I, I should consider that, but ultimately, that is what makes it beautiful. That is what makes it shareable. That is what makes it something that can can impact people's lives and, and be more than just this sort of, you know, little pet project that you have that's cool inside your head, but that's unfunny or uninteresting or unvaluable to everyone else.
0: You know, what? it reminds me of uh, Paul Cantor, one of my absolute all-time favorite uh, lecture series. It's a 10-part series, 10 one-hour lectures called Commerce and Culture by Paul Cantor. Um, It's on, I think it's on iTunes University and a few other places. Um, But he talks in there constantly about the myth of the lone genius, this myth that artists, you know, they're holed up in their cave, totally underappreciated, impoverished, slaving away, producing something that the crude masses don't understand and don't like. And then they produce it and they die penniless. And only later do we all see their genius and the world has changed. And you know, Cantor demonstrates how throughout history this has essentially never been the case. And all of the greats from Dickens and Shakespeare to, you know, uh, Rubens and Picasso and all of them to, to the creators of The X Files were in this wild, collaborative, open process where they were constantly producing stuff. It was getting taken and going in different directions than they expected. They were taking feedback from the audience and other people and, you know, commercializing it and getting that constant interplay between other artists and between their consumers in the marketplace and adapting. I mean, Shakespeare even had a play called as you like it, which was literally kind of a look, if this is the kind of stuff you want and you're paying money for, I'll make a play that is just as you like it full of all the dumb jokes and everything else kind of playfully. And these are considered the greats now. So the myth of the lone genius I think is a really important thing to break down and understand that creativity means a loss of control But that loss of control brings freedom. I mean, just like with your kids, when you let them go and realize that you can't control who they become, then you only then can you really start to enjoy them, be changed by them, have a real relationship. And dare I say it, share a holy moment with them. (laughs) (laughs) Hey man, this was a great time. Um, Leave us with one thing that we should go read this weekend.
1: Well, um, I've been thinking about this the whole show and I'm, I'm pretty upset that you don't know who Kristen Stewart is. She's the girl from twilight, man. How do you, how do you not know who Kristen Stewart is?
0: Okay. Yeah. I know who that is, but twilight that's so five years ago. Yeah. Come on, man. (laughs) So what? So you want us to go read twilight this weekend? Please. I actually, I actually picked up a copy that one time when it was so huge and opened it up to a random page and read a few paragraphs. And I am not one of these people who's thinks that any book that's popular must be terrible. I mean, I think the Harry Potter books were great. I think a lot of popular books. I'm telling you, man, that twilight book, that was, that was some tough writing to read. Uh, it wasn't very good anyway.
1: uh, Um, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say that I've, I've never given it a try. Um,
0: (laughs) this is some role reversal, dude.
1: I know, right. (laughs) Hey, I'll tell you what, let me leave you with a quote last week. We talked about uh, The Mouse That Squeaks and thunder Squeak, and it was a book that I recommended. And, and I here's heard a it, quote,
0: TK, and my wife was oh. like, what is this weird book?
1: <laughs> this is awesome. So I'll give you a book recommendation and a quote to close us out. So here's the quote from The Mouse That Squeaks. He says, the socialist wants to build a society in which every person can thrive. I want to build a person who can thrive in every society. That's the quote of the day, and the book of the week, I'll recommend Common Sense Rebellion, Taking Back Your Life from Drugs, Shrinks, Corporations, and a World Gone Crazy. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but I think it's Bruce Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E. But it's a pretty cool book on just a no-nonsense approach to getting beyond victim consciousness and learning how to survive and thrive in a world that often feels quite insane.
0: And I'm going to leave you with Commerce and Culture Lecture Series by Paul Cantor. He also has a book, The Literature of Liberty. Uh, Go look it up. Awesome stuff. TK, this has been awesome. We'll talk next Friday.
1: Looking forward to it, brother.